Okay, hello everybody. Today is Friday. Normally a Friday is reserved for anything goes when any subject is fair game, but we are doing that tradition in somewhat of a different fashion this week because I've been doing an ongoing series about the New Orleans Axeman and some possible crimes that could be connected to this serial killer that operated in Louisiana in 1918 and 1919. And I said in the first two episodes that it really was quite difficult to actually put a specific date on the first crime of the Axeman because unlike Jack the Ripper and unlike the Zodiac Killer, there's mostly one letter that has been closely attributed to the Axeman and then there's some other pieces of writing that have come about, like a message was written after some of the crimes that happened in the earlier part of the second decade in um, the 20th century, but it was really difficult for me to find a specific source that would say, who was the New Orleans Axeman, when did these crimes begin, how and why were they committed, and I actually found a good starting point. And if this is the first one that you've heard in this series, that's fine, you can keep listening, this is a great time to begin. But I would always like to remind you guys that you can like and subscribe, follow the show, and you can get the free downloads at Launchpad 1. You can also visit the Teespring page, Amazon.com, for a copy of the book Killer on a White Horse. The link for the free downloads at Launchpad 1 is in the description box. And as always, good stuff on the Zodiac Killer channel, where I'm a contributor. But I was watching the documentary Axeman, the Worst Serial Killer in History, from George Rucker. That's the name of the YouTube channel that has featured that. Big uh, thank you to George Rucker for sharing this. I'm pretty sure that he was the creator. It seems like a user-generated documentary. But he actually went back to 1879 when these killings occurred. Or first began, we should say. Now, I know it's going to sound like it is something beyond belief, or it's going to sound that it's too outrageous to be true, but in this documentary, Axeman, the worst serial killer in history, the theory that is put forward is that there was a serial killer operating in both the United States and Germany from just that 1879 all the way until 1922, and that this person... I'll just give you the nutshell version of the theory. There was a German immigrant that came to the United States of America, spent just over four decades here, and returned to Germany and committed some very similar murders, because I do have to agree with people who think that there's something so bizarre when a serial killer has a very small reign of terror or short years of activity unless they are apprehended by the police. Sometimes we see serial killers operating for two years. A clear example of that is Kenneth Harrison, the serial killer from Boston known as the Giggler. He operated from 1967 to 69. He murdered four people, allegedly. I mean, he was convicted of that, I just have my doubts. But he was apprehended by the police. Why did he stop killing? Well, he was incarcerated. He was sent to jail. With Jack the Ripper, or the Zodiac Killer, or the New Orleans Axeman, these people were never caught. And even with the Axeman, 1918 to 1919, that is an abnormally short operation, an abnormally short years of operation or reign of terror, years of activity for a serial killer, because you'd have to wonder if this person could successfully get away with murder, and they have impulses that are driving them to kill, well, 
wouldn't they be tempted to do it again? Even if someone is going to put forward the type of theory that these are not sexually motivated killings, they're not done because of urges, they're not done because of biological issues like hormone imbalances that are beyond their control, even if they're doing it because of a calculated reason or they're angry at somebody and they want to get revenge in a very specific way and they have this type of criminal masterpiece that they want to commit, wouldn't they get the urge to do it again? Or I shouldn't use that word urge. Wouldn't they contemplate doing it again if they knew that they had done it successfully so many times? All of those cases. In this um, documentary, Axeman, the worst serial killer in history, put forward that thesis that, yes, this person was operating for a very long time, and we only know about the murders that occurred in 1918 and 1919 in New Orleans because of the newspapers, because of the way the media was presenting their stories, and of course because of that famous letter, the one that talks about playing jazz, any home that has a jazz band playing will be spared. But I said that this one proposed that the first crime began in 1879, and this was known as the DeFore Murders, and I'm going to go over to a website called Atlanta's Upper West Side, and yes, these are in Georgia, not New Orleans, but as I said, the um, the uh, theory from the George Rucker video is that the New Orleans Axeman was operating as early as 1879 all over the country, and one of the reasons why I had trouble identifying the start date of these crimes that could be committed by this serial killer is Every other source was going back more and more. Like, I talked about how, okay, Miriam C. Davis was talking about 1910 was the beginning of the Axeman crimes, and then thir the 13 o'clock podcast was saying, oh, actually, there was a very similar crime that happened in 1909. And I was like, well, which one is it? Were these different people, or was it the same serial killer? And before I read off this source, I'll just give another introductory preface, condition, provisio, whatever, that there are three questions we're going to be exploring with this series. The first is, are all these crimes committed by a single perpetrator? The second is, are these crimes committed by a group of people? And the third is, are these just unconnected crimes that the media, particularly the newspapers and writers, are trying to link together? Those three questions will be explored. But yes, we're going to be talking about the murders of Martin and Susan DeFore here. And as I said, this website is called Atlanta's Upper West Side, the first time I ever used them. On Saturday morning, July 26th, 1879, on the road to Bolton, which was then called Iceville, six miles from the city stood a weather-stained old barn with folds of gray and green, and the back of it had a tottering portico under its moldering roof. There lay the bodies of two victims of a gruesome murder, a murder as gruesome as a murder has ever been committed in Fulton County. Martin DeFore and his wife Susan were murdered that rainy Friday night as they lay in their bed, and though 73 years have passed, the identity of the slayer has never been discovered. A little bit more than 73 years now, you can see that this is going to be an older uh, piece of writing. The bodies were nearly decapitated by axe blows, and they were found at 6 a.m., July 26, by Martin Walker, a grandson who noticed that his grandparents were not up at the usual hour, and he went to investigate. 
the old couple had not known an enemy in the world, and robbery was not the motive. And this was evidenced by the fact that while a bureau drawer had been broken, a bag containing $18 in silver was left in plain sight. You can see very clearly how some guy like George Rucker would try and connect this to the New Orleans Axeman. A couple, multiple people, are attacked in their home. Robbery is not the motive. Money has not been taken. The money's in plain sight. I mean, the, the bag with the $18 of silver is very easily accessible. We will see this time and time again when we look at the crimes that occurred in Louisiana from 1910 all the way to 1919. Some of the points that George Rucker shared in his video is that they believe that this killer who murdered Martin and Susan DeFore climbed into their um, home, perhaps through an open window, and was actually waiting somewhere in the house for hours. And they, they learned this because they even found the killer's excrement still in the house. And another thing that is um, almost rarely talked about with serial killers, but um, we talked about it with the Golden State Killers, that sometimes people will commit the murders, and then they will stay behind at the house, and they'll do things like eating food and so on, and they believe that the killer after the DeFore murders did the same thing. But if you do watch this George Rucker documentary, there are just numerous stories that have happened like this. I kid thee not, San Antonio, Texas, some that I had talked about previously. Now, one that was shared by 13 o'clock was they said that a very similar crime happened in San Antonio around 1912 or 1913, and they're just numerous ones. I'm not even sure which one they were talking about specifically. The places that George Rucker identified were in Oregon, they were in Texas, Louisiana, Georgia, as we just said with the DeFore murders, and then in Germany, all around, well, the world even. But um, they're just numerous places in the country where these um, crimes are occurring. And once you get to the crimes in Germany, a particular note was made by the investigators that it seemed like the person was using an extremely careful amount of precision, or it wasn't like someone who's just hacking somebody to death out of rage. The like the person had a lot of familiarity with how to strike an axe against a person. That's another reason why people think that all these crimes were connected. But what I would like to do is I would like to um, do a comparison between this crime of the murders of Martin and Susan DeFore and one that is more closely connected to the New Orleans Axeman. Because there's actually a page that was made for the New Orleans Axeman on Penn State's website, psu.edu. And what it says is that from May of 1918 to October of 1919, this serial killer was active in New Orleans and the surrounding communities. In most of the victims' cases, the killer entered the home by removing a panel on the back door with a chisel and then left near the door. Ah, that's quite different than a lot of the things George Rucker discussed. Those were about um, somebody sneaking in through a window, if that means anything. There were also never signs of robbery because not even a single item was taken from any of the houses. Okay, now that's similar to the DeFore murders. They were usually attacked with an axe that belonged to them, so the only weapon the killer ever actually brought onto the scene was a straight razor. Most of the victims were of Italian descent, either immigrants or Italian-Americans, which also led poli the police to believe that ethnicity played a role in the killer's motive. 
The first victims were Joseph Maggio and his wife Catherine. The couple's throats were slit and cut while they were sleeping, and after that the killer broke the killer had beaten their heads with an axe after committing the crime the killer changed into clean clothes leaving the blood-stained ones at the scene so they could flee without a notice following a thorough search the only bloody razor that was found was in a neighbor's yard but this evidence only made the case more of a mystery it was inspected and found to have belonged to andrew maggio the brother of joseph maggio making him a prime suspect he had no alibi, as he was alone in his apartment at the time of the murders, but he was eventually released. I mean, just because it was his razor, I mean, doesn't necessarily mean that he was guilty of that. And, you know, I'm trying to be generous. I mean, if it's at his brother's house, I mean, maybe he had brought it over there for some previous reasons. I mean, if your sibling lives nearby... I mean, I have things in my siblings' homes that belong to me as of now, and he was eventually released, though, due to lack of evidence. Sometime after these killings, the most intriguing part of this case came about. On March 13, 1919, the Axeman wrote a letter that was published in newspapers all over New Orleans and the surrounding areas. It was essentially a warning that on March 19th he would attack again if a live jazz band was not playing in the locations that he chose. He would spare all inhabitants that were playing jazz. That night, every dance hall in the city was filled with people, and no murders occurred. And as I said before, according to Miriam C. Davis, who is the author of The um, the Axeman of New Orleans, The True Story, that not everyone took that threat seriously. Some people disregarded it, and still there were no murders on that specific day. And she believes that that letter was most likely a hoax, meaning written by someone who was not the killer. So, are you noticing something very different between that crime that took place, the Maggio murder, and the DeFore murders? Because with the DeFore murders, their throats were not slit with a razor. And that really just begs the question, well, if this is the same person, why not? And I know I've read that off a couple times about what happened to Joseph and Catherine Maggio, but really just looking at this comparison, like you can identify the origin date, and then you look at the murders that they're trying to link to the Axeman, why is that not the same? Now, serial killers are mostly pattern-based, but what I find is there's often deviation from the pattern, and... This can happen usually once or twice. Like, you've ever seen that when you're reading through info about a serial killer and you find out, okay, this is how they committed their crimes. Some people use blunt force trauma. Some people commit their crimes mostly by knife. Some people commit their crimes mostly by strangulation. And then there's usually one exception. And these exceptions get created when a serial killer has to think very quickly or maybe a victim is trying to escape and then they do something different. Or maybe they murdered somebody because of a different reason. Like, for example, maybe a serial killer would mostly target women and he would stab them with knives. But then a man started a fight with him and he strangled him to death. And yes, of course, he murdered that person, but it was done for a different reason. And um, there are definitely uh, cases of this. I already mentioned Kenneth Harrison, the giggler. He killed a man with blunt force trauma and threw his body into the water. His other victims were killed in all different ways. It's a fascinating story about that. I have an episode about him 
And another one is Glenn Rogers, the Casanova killer, who was the one I was really thinking about. He had a history of attacking women with knives, and it's possible, possible that he strangled one man. There's no rule book on how you, people are going to be committing these murders. If somebody is going to be going after people who are in their homes, mostly done for a type of, um, not exactly thrill-killing, rage-killing, deranged killing. That's what I think these axe murders really seem like, because they're going back as early as 1879, and they're happening over an enormous time frame, all the way to 1922, in various parts of the United States of America, in Germany, when someone is breaking into people's homes and attacking them with an axe. Now, some of you are absolutely going to hate this next statement, but that seems to support what um, is in what is in line with the hoax theory that these are unconnected crimes, and that the that these types of tragedies just happen, or that serial killers operate in this way much more frequently. Now, you might be wondering, why don't you hear about too many serial killers who are just breaking into people's homes and stabbing, and, and not stabbing them, but bludgeoning them with axes or striking people with axes? Well, Miriam C. Davis talked about this a little bit when she said she believes that the killer started out by taking a meat cleaver and going after people, but why switch from a meat cleaver to an axe? Well, everybody at the time had a wood-burning stove, right? I mean, especially... You think 1918, 1919, that's not outrageous. 1879, that's not outrageous. It was a weapon that was commonly nearby. But, um, you know, it's fascinating to look at the possibility that this could be going back as early as 1879. And I'm really glad that someone really wanted to put a solid date on it. But um, even the DeFore murder back in 1879 remains unsolved unto this day. Until this day. It even says here, on Atlanta's Upper West Side. Despite the best efforts of Sheriff William A. Wilson, his deputies, and his successor, Angus Perkerson, the crimes were never solved. Many suspects, mostly black men, were arrested, but each clue ended in a blind tally. Well, I don't necessarily know how effective their research process was back in 1879, but um, as you can see, though, after 1922, people are keeping axes and wood-burning stoves around a little bit less, or maybe they're just different methods that come about, and maybe it becomes easier to acquire other types of weapons. But the thing about the axes, it can be found at any home. It's already there, and it can be left behind. And with the DeFore murder I heard on George Rucker's channel, uh, the person left the axe in the fireplace, and it was covered in blood and ashes. I don't know if that was some type of uh, way to disguise some piece of evidence, or maybe it was simply just tossing it somewhere that was out of sight. I really have no idea because this is an unsolved case. However, you do get curious about that, and you also, and I just want to be 100% clear that it is also horribly abnormal for a serial killer to have a 42, 43, 44, year reign of terror, that time span for years of operation or years of activity is very large because what happens very frequently with serial killers is they start out by committing murders and this usually would happen perhaps in the late teen years. Maybe the first crime isn't even completely planned and then 
because they realize that they committed this crime and they got away with it, then they can continue to do so. Or even after the first crime, which is planned, happens, they got away with it, and then they decide that they're going to kill again, and they do it again and again and again. And they learned how to hide these destructive tendencies because they, um, well, it comes, it goes back to some early manipulative tactics that people learn in childhood, how to disguise certain types of emotions, how to tell lies without having any of the telltale signs away on their face, what is referred to as extreme deception indicated. So I'm thinking that that goes on until usually around the late 30s, early 40s, maybe with some people, it carries on into a longer period of um, their adulthood, but there's a decline in testosterone that happens, and then the person is more or less going to um, hold back some of their uh, urges anymore, where they realize because they're getting older that they're unable to keep doing this because they're less agile, they have less um, of an ability to fight back, and that their predatory instincts take over, and the person's thinking, if I keep doing this, I'm going to get caught. Well, right now, though, I would like to just talk about a different set of crimes that were attributed to the New Orleans Axeman that happened in the early part of the 20th century that is mentioned in Miriam C. Davis's book, Axeman of New Orleans, and this talks about the murder of the Cordomiglias, and there's a very particular detail that I want to zone in on. It says, Hazel Johnson, a young black woman, bolted out of the Cordomiglias combination residence and grocery yelling for someone, anyone to help. The Cordomiglias had been murdered. Frank Giordano was upstairs in his bed when his 20-year-old sister Lena's historical cries, Oh Jesus, oh Jesus, oh Jesus, punctured his sleep. Panic-stricken, thinking something had happened to their mother, he tumbled down the stairs, dressing on the way. Facing his sister, shirt unbuttoned and without socks, he demanded, What's the trouble? Is it Mama? They're dead, she wept. Mr. Cordomiglia, Mrs. Cordomiglia, and the baby are dead. Dazed as he stared at her, do you mean that? Yes, she insisted. Hazel Johnson came running out, hollering. They were dead. Ah, you're noticing something different here. With the four murders in 1879, you only have a husband and wife, man and woman. With the Maggios, you also see that it's a man and a woman present now. A man, a woman, and a child. What on earth could be going on with this type of MO and serial killer thinking? I mean, is this just somebody who is going to break into people's homes and commit a series of crimes and not care who the victims are? Is it about the crime? Is it about the killing? Or, And they simply do not care about who the victims are, male, female, young, old. I get very suspicious when I see this type of MO being created by the media that someone's going after men and women when someone is going after children and adults because usually there is a psychological reason why someone is choosing one or the other. If somebody is a home invader, that deals with animosity toward adults or less, or if they are going after children, then they want access to them, and they would just be subduing the adults so they could have access to the children. How on earth could all of these crimes be connected with a single pattern where someone is just breaking into somebody's home, not committing any type of sexual assaults, 
and just going after everyone, just destroying everybody in the home. What is this? How would you even create a, a type of connection? Is it just animosity toward family life and so on? And I think, though, if you're going to go with George Rucker's theory about how there is this um, very evil serial killer that is operating from 1879 to 1922, then it definitely would be just about that, going after any type of victim, no, ma no matter who it is. There would be absolutely no chance that this is Italian-American discrimination. There's no chance that there's any type of ethnicity involved, because he's talking about people from all over the world, from different backgrounds, German, French, Polish, um, and uh, Italians, of course. But there is no consistency with the ethnicities. Now, with the Axeman crimes that happened in New Orleans, many people are still trying to zone in on the fact that there is this Italian-American discrimination going on. But when you look at how frequently these Axeman crimes are happening, and just look at the similarities with the DeFour murder from Georgia in 1879, it seems that somebody is having a larger issue and I think it has absolutely nothing to do with Italian-American discrimination. In the previous episodes, I did give credit to that theory that was looking at um, the mafia. Like, was the mafia involved? Because so many of these people own businesses. And even if they're not Italian-American, just like owning a grocery or some type of storefront, did they not pay a bribe? Did they not do something that they were supposed to do, did they owe money, and then they were murdered by a mafia hitman. That is one of the theories with the New Orleans Axeman, that yes, there is a single perpetrator, but he's not some type of thrill-kill serial killer. Instead, he was a hitman for a sect of the Italian mafia, and I'm not dismissing that completely, but once I was watching George Rucker's documentary talking about how very similar crimes have happened all over the world from 1879 to 1922, then that gives me the impression that there, the, these crimes just happen frequently, that there is some type of psychological reason going on, and whether it's the family being murdered in San Antonio, Texas, or the other similar crimes that occurred in 1910 and 11, or as I said, maybe even 1909 in the state of Louisiana, are, is there some type of just animosity toward family life that is being expressed by the killer? And I'm kind of leaning toward that after watching his documentary. However, this hitman theory is very, very um, plausible, and I don't want to you know, like denigrate anything that Miriam C. Davis has done, but I just really didn't like it when she said in her interview on Most Notorious that she talked to a psychological profiler who said that if someone is committing crimes with the exact same method, then it is most likely the same person. No. I mean, I don't see an ounce of evidence that the DeFore murders of 1879 were actually committed by the same person who did the New Orleans Axeman murders. All right, somebody broke into somebody's home, and they used an axe. And George Rucker said this very frequently throughout his documentary. That person is breaking in through a window and spending a large amount of time in the home. And especially after the murders in Germany, the person was not only eating food, but I believe he was also cooking meals in the home. And that's a sign of domination. 
as I said, we talked about this a lot in the Golden State Killer episodes, where it's showing that, okay, I have done this horrible crime to you, now I have taken over your home, I am now the king of your castle, that is an aspect of domination, and many serial killers do their crimes purely for domination, money, sex, and power, right? What do they want? They want power. So I'm not convinced at all that there is a single perpetrator operating. I would like to just um, wrap things up in a neat little package and be like, oh yeah, these were mafia killings and um, they even had the same hitman. I'm not completely convinced yet, but I'm going to keep reading Miriam Davis's book and I'll see if I can uncover some new types of analysis that have been shared. I also will try to find some other documentaries and sources, and I simply want to maybe do something larger about the DeFore murders, maybe go through some more sources and see if there are any details that have actually been shared. And I would just like to ask you some questions about the Cordomiglia murder and the Amagio murder first. About the Cordomiglias, do you think it's odd that this perpetrator is only, or is going after all kinds of people, man, woman, adult, child, targeting every type of demographic? And also, after the Maggio murder, do you find it suspicious that the victims had their throats cut and the razor belonged to Joseph Maggio's brother? So, um, do you, I know I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt, because you can't convict somebody on that a lot. Maybe it's not even the benefit of the doubt, it's reasonable doubt. Okay, it's his razor, but they were brothers. I mean, that it's possible that items from Brother A could be in Brother B's house. I think you can get the idea. But he has no alibi, it is his razor. Does that make you suspicious? And do you believe that... The New Orleans Axeman was operating as early as 19, sorry, 1879, yes, 1879 to 1922. What is that, 43 years? That is a very long time span, especially for Axeman killings. Like, if this is just someone who's sneaking up on people, firing some gunshots and running away, yeah, that could be done for 43 years, no matter what. No matter what, the guy is going to be well into his 50s, most likely into his 60s, and that's the way they talked about this in the George Rucker documentary, that if there is a single suspect, you can imagine maybe a German citizen comes to America around the age of 18 or 19, maybe 20 years old, and is there for like nearly four decades. What George Rucker said was the working life of an adult male, that 43-year time span, and also, does it simply just raise the question that, is it possible that these crimes happened because axes were more frequently kept on the property of citizens? I mean, even more so than now, because everybody had a wood-burning stove, it was a weapon that was very nearby, many serial killers do this actually, they find a weapon that is just on the premises so they don't have to carry anything with them, so they don't have to dispose of it. Okay, so somebody comes on the premise. The objective is to murder a family because of animosity toward their own family. Some type of destructive trauma happened to them, and they retaliate 
in an even more destructive way, and that these crimes happened all across the world, and they still happen to this day. It's just they happen with access a little bit less frequently because the um, the ease of access to other weapons has changed. I'd be very curious if that's what's going on. But what do you think about the New Orleans Axe Man? What do you think about this connection to uh, Iceville, Georgia? As I said, um, outside of Atlanta, it's in the suburbs of Atlanta, 1879, with the DeFour murders. Please feel free to weigh in in the comments section down below. Share anything that you would like. What do you think about any of these discussions here, and what do you think about the New Orleans Axeman? Is it a single person? Is it a group of people like the Mafia? Or are these just unconnected murders that happen from time to time? And someone is trying to make you think that it is one person. Please weigh in below, and as I said, you can always follow the show on Facebook. My personal Facebook is in the description box. Instagram as well, BlackBoxNed88 on Instagram. And you can even write the show at blackboxonlineradio at AOL.com. That's all for me now, and I'll see you over on Instagram for the bonus podcast. Until next time.